Lumpur Cha used to compare people with chickens raised on a farm. Said that the chicken is fed by the farmer every day and assumes wrongly that the farmer loves the chicken. Every day the farmer feeds the chicken and picks it up, weighs it to see if it's fat enough to slaughter yet. While the farmer's picking up the chicken to weigh it, the chicken thinks the farmer really loves it, keeps giving it food. The chicken is in a state of blissful ignorance. Said people are the same. The farmer is like the lord of death. And people live their lives obsessed with sense impressions, indulging their desires, their likes and dislikes, thinking everything is fine, like the chicken and don't realize that the Lord of Death is just around the corner. So they get caught out, surprised when death takes them, and they're not ready for it. So every year we're getting older, We've reached another Vesak, Visaka, Puja, Even though we may have achieved much in the last year, we're also one year closer to our death. Time is running out. And we still have the causes of suffering in our heart. We still have the kalesas affecting us as they have done since we were born. We've come into the monastery, we're now setting our minds on cultivating maga, the path, the threefold training, a sila sikha, the training in restraint, morality, training of body and speech, adijitta sikha, Training the mind, developing samadhi, firmness of mind. Panyasika, training in wisdom, investigating the truth. Development of sila is something that bears fruit with the arising of samadhi and supports it. Samadhi bears fruit with the arising of Wisdom, Panya. This is training in the path. Cultivating the causes and conditions for insight that liberates the mind by completely cutting off, abandoning kilesa, rooted in greed, anger, delusion, for the realization of Nibbana.
we're cultivating this path, learning to recognize the difference between kilesa and wholesome karma, and then ultimately abandoning both, bringing the mind to see like the Buddha, the true nature of reality. As the Buddha said, sabbe sankara anicca, sabbe sankara dukkha, sabbe sabbe dhamma anatta. All conditioned things, all formations are impermanent. And dukkha, and not self. Ultimately, the Buddha came to see the lack of self in all phenomena. Rupa Dhamma, physical phenomena, Nama Dhamma, mental phenomena. That was the insight that led to his mind being freed from greed, anger and delusion. This is where he encouraged us to look, to train in developing wisdom, cultivating wisdom by investigating, to see, to know, anicca anatta in, in our experience of this body and mind. The alternative is to keep going the way of the kilesas, always following desire, even when we get what we want still not satisfied, not peaceful, afraid we'll lose what we have. And when we haven't got what we want, frustrated, unhappy because of that. Even the Buddha was subject to the kilesas he saw for not only for one life, but for many innumerable lifetimes. Being born and dying, still experiencing the effects of greed, anger, delusion on his mind. So I no doubt that that wasn't the way to the end of suffering, by following greed, anger, delusion. There must be another way the way of non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. <coughs> so he cultivated the path through his own innate wisdom. Still, you might say, a process of trial and error, but ultimately successful through great patience and effort, not giving up finally did liberate his mind from Kilesa and then was able to teach this path, this way back to us out of compassion. They compared it to like a river. If we were a log on the river flowing towards the sea, which is Nibbana, if we don't indulge in either Kama Sukhali, Kanu Yoga on one side, indulgence in sense impressions, sense pleasure, 
or Atakilamatana Yoga on the other side, the other bank. Indulge in self-harm, self-mortification. If we indulge in neither of these two extremes, then we keep flowing along this river. We're, sooner or later, we're bound to reach Nibbāna. This is the way of Magga, the way of the path, centered in mindfulness, right mindfulness and right view. And this is our aim now, is to cultivate that repeatedly, to go against our previous tendencies of falling into states of greed, anger and delusion. So it's a process of waking up to the truth. process of gradual awakening of the mind, pulling it out of its former habits, cycles of suffering. They call it the kilesa water feeds kama water, feeds vibhaka water. Mental defilements feed the making of karma, feed the results of karma which lead to the making of more karma, as more defilements are conditioned. It's a cycle that we're stuck into. And now we're waking up through developing the path to see this process by looking more closely at our own minds, what's going on. Not simply giving in to every mood and every desire, every thought, every, every opinion, like we used to. Now we're cultivating the path, sila samadhi panya, which means sometimes we question our own thoughts and views, question our own behavior, habit patterns, to see whether they're in line with the arising of mindfulness and wisdom or just leading to more delusion, more ignorance, shutting the mind down, darkening it. Just because we've ordained as monks doesn't yet mean our mind is the mind of a monk. We go through an ordination ceremony, but the defilements and the conditioning process of them are still there. Greed, anger, delusion are still waiting to spring up when the conditions are right to affect us. The Vinaya helps to streamline our behavior, simplifies things, encourages the restraint, the basic mindfulness of action, speech, and then mental intention. But it's something we have to put effort into learning and then practicing with until it becomes more normal for us to behave in accordance with the Vinaya. We're more at ease with the Vinaya. At first it's frustrating and requires effort because it's not our natural way. What we're used to is the way of the defilements. The longer we practice, the more we might start to appreciate the value of Vinaya for training, keeping the defilements in check long enough and keeping our minds 
safe enough from the defilements that then we can reflect to actually undermine them and remove them from the mind. But we have to be vigilant because even though the Vinaya is a very complete all-round training system, it's still, you might say, working on the outside. We still have the roots of suffering inside, internally. You can keep the rules, <coughs> but states of greed, anger, delusion still arise. The Buddha reminded us if every time we fall into a mental state with ignorance, with delusion, conditioning, craving and attachment, well, this is like fresh birth. Wherever there's craving, attachment, this stimulates becoming. It's where karma is made, becoming. It's where it's the final cause for more birth. So like even as a monk, you can have a, a robe, a new robe, delight in that robe and be reborn as a, bed, a, a bug attached to that robe. That's the nature of defilements. Even if we simplify our lives, doesn't guarantee a freedom from greed, anger and delusion. Maga guarantees the freedom from greed, anger and delusion. Development of sila, samadhi and panya. The vinaya is a supportive factor, but it's not the whole practice. Just reflect on your mental activity, even the simplicity of the bhikkhu life can still be the grounds for attachment to arise. We can attach to a kuti, attach to a robe, attach to our alms food. Even though it's simple living like this, eating one meal a day, you eat in a bowl, put it all in together. By the standards of the world, that's very ascetic already. But still, it can become a basis for greed. We can still be attaching to the food, stimulates us, excites us. We yearn for it, especially when we're hungry or tired. In the lay life, you don't see this very much, because you just eat when you want, the kind of food you want. You arrange your house, your home, how you want. The bhikkhu, we're starting to frustrate those desires, but they're still there. It's not like they, they just disappear once you come into the ropes. But the simplicity of the life allows you maybe to see more clearly when defilements come up, especially when they form around very ordinary things. You know, it's, sometimes it's just laughable when you get so much greed forming around very simple requisites. Maybe you have a new requisite and someone touches it or moves it already can go into rage. Why are they touching my requisite? Moving my torch or my robe. Such a simple little mistake or someone's careless and yet such rage can arise such greed can arise, just wanting something that you haven't got that you think you might be able to get some requisite. The life, simplicity of the lifestyle helps us to see defilement at work so we can study it.
see how it conditions suffering. The suffering of greed, suffering of anger. Somebody just gives a, an opinion that we disagree with or puts us down in their speech or just shows us some kind of disrespect. We can remember it for the whole day, or maybe for many days. Just a few words, a few sound vibrations hitting the ear can put the mind into turmoil. Strong emotions, feeling depressed, feeling angry. Or maybe a lay person praises us and we get very excited. In the end it's just a few little a few little words nudging the ear and we make so much out of it. But in a way that's good because in this practice in the monastery, in the bhikkhu life, you can at least see defilements. You have enough time and space, it's supportive for seeing that process at work. So in the lay life often it's so complicated it's according to so many activities, we just never stop and never establish enough mindfulness to see what's going on. So even though dukkha arises in this life, it's not something to run away from. It's actually something you, after a while, you start to appreciate. And dukkha is the place of learning. The problem is when we take ownership of it, we take ownership of, of every mood, every desire, every reaction. If we can have enough mindfulness and clear comprehension just to see dukkha as dukkha, and just nama and rupa arising and ceasing, or dukkha just arising and ceasing, we'll be all right. That's the way of practice. Once we start reflecting like this and letting go, then even when fresh dukkha arises and you know you, it arises, you maybe can't let go of it yet, but you know from previous experience it must be that you're just holding on and you start to trust in that insight. So you keep looking for where you're holding on rather than just blaming somebody or indulging in the mood. Ajahn Chah used to quote Lumpur Tongrat, who says he talked about the old Lungta, the old granddad who became a monk and was taught to be like a stump. Lumpur Tongrat said, do you see that stump over there, tree stump? Grey, no bark, no leaves, just an old grey stump. He said, just be like that stump. At first, the Lungta didn't understand, the granddad monk didn't understand, oh, what does he mean, be like a stump? So he went away and contemplated on it. Sat, meditation, walked meditation, until he realized a stump is a stump. Nothing grows. Nothing forms out of that stump. So your experience of the worldly dhammas, the pleasure and pain, the happiness and sadness, 
You just let it be like a stump. You don't let things grow out of it. You don't let the calaces take over and indulge, causes more suffering. You learn to just let things be. So it doesn't matter if anger arises, if you have mindfulness, you just let it be. So of course it passes away again. Greed arises, you let it be. And sometimes as we're practicing, we've studied the teachings, we've heard the teachings, and we get very rigid in our view. We're practicing the precepts, and then now we're practicing samatha, got to develop samadhi, get samadhi, get jhana, then I'll do my vipassana, develop insight. We get very fixed, so as soon as a kilesa arises or a hindrance arises, we think we've got to destroy it. So instead of just letting it be, we actually create more suffering out of it. Because our view is not right. We see the hindrance is an enemy, and in a way it is an enemy. We talk about it that way, but in our mind, at the moment it arises, we actually react with aversion, or with a desire to get rid of. So you get one desire replacing another desire. Sajjan Chai encourages us just to develop enough mindfulness to see it as it is. Enough con continuity of mindfulness, clear comprehension. Just see anger arises, but you don't get involved with it. You don't let it stay in the mind. There's no effort to sit down and talk about. As we're practicing meditation, it's like you're sitting on a chair in your front porch or in your hallway of your house. Visitors come. There's only one chair, so they come in, and there's nowhere to sit down, so they have to go out again. Of course, as you meditate, you're going to get plenty of hindrances arising. Greed, anger, sleepiness, doubt, worry. You establish mindfulness and keep it there. And then they can't stay in the mind, they go out again. You don't have to react with aversion to hindrances or feel depressed because you've got a lot of hindrances or make judgments or form opinions about yourself. It's always about coming back to mindful awareness, coming back to the breath or bhutto, seeing the hindrance but letting it go by not getting involved with it. Same with the body. You're learning to relate to this body with equanimity. Have enough mindfulness to experience the body but not get involved with it, and not react to it and form opinions about it, identify with it as being mine, good body, bad body, healthy body, sick body. Just know it for what it is. It's just elements, physical elements. So Lumpur Chah said, whether you're practicing samatha or vipassana, it's the same mind you're working with and you're learning to put things down. Not get involved with them, not pick things up. In the way of the kalesas, is like you're always picking things up, holding on to them, indulging in them. Even dukkha, you pick it up, you cling on to it. Now we're letting things go, putting things down. Even if a great 
emotional trauma arises, if you try hard enough to establish mindfulness, even that, just let it be there and let it go without getting involved with it. It's just that much. It's just a very strong emotional state. But it arises and it ceases. Pain in the body, feelings of tiredness, anxiety, worry, whatever. You keep returning to the place of mindfulness, bringing it up, establishing mindfulness, and you're not getting involved with things. It's just what they are, and you carry on with your practice. Soon as we lose our mindfulness, we take ownership. It's back to the kilesas again, liking, disliking, wanting, not wanting, judging, forming opinions about everything, complicating everything. Really, if you think about it, living in a monastery, living this lifestyle, there's really not a lot to create suffering about. We have the opportunity to practice. We have, we've heard the Dhamma. We have the practice. We have the chance to practice the Dhamma. Everything we need is here. We have the four requisites. We can always get by on less. We always have more than we need, wherever we are. We have the Dhamma, we have everything we need. If we keep appreciating that point, then it's easier to be feel content and just to carry on practicing. Sitting, walking, obviously we have to bring our effort, put effort into the practice. But we have everything we require. We have our intelligence, we have our bodies and minds right here. All the people who have realized the Dhamma, men, women, monks, nuns, even lay people since the time of the Buddha, they're just the same as us. They are human beings with the body and mind just like us. Where they may differ, like maybe the ones who do attain Nibbāna, reach enlightenment. They, basically, they're human beings who didn't give up the practice. Everyone strays, everyone takes a few wrong turns. But ultimately, they didn't give up, they just kept going. And it might be a bit like, say, when you say you were in a travelling across the ocean in a boat and your boat capsizes or sinks and you're suddenly stranded in the ocean. If you can't see the shore, then at first it's quite overwhelming. It almost seems hopeless. But if you keep swimming, like the Bodhisattva, you keep swimming, sooner or later you might get a glimpse of land. It's still a long way away, but once you've had the glimpse of land, then you get enough encouragement just to keep swimming. Because you know there's land there. It's like someone who's had a glimpse of Nibbāna, have a glimpse of insight into impermanence. They see um, this body and mind that I've been attaching to for so long, it really isn't 
anything substantial. It's just an idea that I had in my mind, a delusion. Once you've seen the impermanence of your candors, then you also see not-self. There's not a self in this. It's an experience of liberation. So if you've had a little taste of that, the liberating insight, the mind starts to appreciate what they mean by emptiness. The mind that is free from self, free from grasping, clinging in the idea of self. It's like seeing the mind, uh, seeing the land when you're caught in the, the middle of the ocean. It gives you enough energy, enough inspiration to keep swimming even if you're tired. At first the practice is a bit like treading water in the ocean. Not quite sure where to go and what to do. If you keep practicing, it's like you keep swimming, or well, sooner or later you get a glimpse of dry land. Then all you have to do is just keep going, homing in on, without much doubt. All of us can achieve that. You just keep practicing using the teachings as your vehicle, as your guidance, and you reflect on your own experience. Anyone can see a thought arising, passing away, experience a feeling of pain in your legs or your back as you're sitting meditation, arise, pass away. Anyone can do that and start investigating, seeing the truth. Little by little, the defilements start to fade out, become lessened. They might keep returning, but you know what to do with them. You keep reflecting on their impermanence, watching them rather than getting involved with them. So we have a chance to carry on practicing tonight, so I'll leave you with these reflections for now.